a note to the listener. This is not a podcast to relax to. Oh, you want to put this on in the background? Well, we're providing the foreground to your day, the basis. Today I have on the program uh, one of the most intellectually incendiary figures of our time, Michael Schindler. He's a writer, published poet, Twitter personality, aristocrat of the spirit, and social lion of the Washington, D.C. literati. Uh, glad to have you with us here, Michael. Oh, thank you. And uh, the reason I wanted to talk to Michael is because we have uh, similar interests and we also uh, are kind of in similar spheres online, I would say. Uh, Art, literature, religion, maybe politics a bit. Um, All right, Michael. So to start off with, I was trying to think of questions that would would distill your essence, like I was saying, to, to, to really allow our audience to you know, get more deeply acquainted with your, not just your persona, but the, the reality lying underneath that. Um, sure. So I guess you're most notable, I would say for, you're kind of like associated with, I guess, is it fair to say a conservative uh, Twitter present? I, I would say so. I'm not sure that conservative Twitter is the right word for it. Um, maybe sort of right-wing Twitter is a bit better. Based trads who are returning to the Bronze Age. Oh, oh I mean... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think I might be in that circle, but I mean, I certainly don't have those politics. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I know. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, you're associated with uh, defending modern art. Like, you're a trad who, who defends modern art, essentially. Well, I wouldn't call you a trad, but a you're, you, you defend uh, modern architecture, too, right? Yeah. Okay. So, let's imagine that you're, you're like a traditional guy. You're out out there in the, the soybean fields. You're operating heavy agricultural machinery, listening to a, a John Cougar Mellencamp album on a slightly out-of-date iPod one that's maybe overdue for an upgrade. You come home and someone says, hey, you should stare at this Rothko painting for 20 minutes instead of watching a, a syndicated rerun of uh, Two and a Half Men, which was popular in the, the early 2000s, but I imagine still in a syndication. So how, uh, how do you convince this guy to watch, to look at the Rothko painting and not turn on the, the Two and a Half Men rerun? Or you can alternately explain why it doesn't, does it matter? <laughs> oh, well, that's a good situation to think about. Like, I've written an essay for this purpose, but the essay isn't geared exactly for um, uh, this sort of, like, um, this farmer who has, like, no real sort of background in art. I think that the best person, like, the best case scenario um, for me in terms of, like, converting somebody is somebody who's already a, like, I can appreciator of what's called variously traditional or classical art. Um, whereas it'd be much harder to bring somebody who's sort of um, a two and a half man watcher, uh, like, you know, directly to Rothko. It's like taking somebody, like taking a sort of like modern atheist and saying, well, you know, here's Christianity. Like, I much prefer to convert a pagan. Um, but, uh, you know, still going back to that question of what to do with this sort of person, um, I would try before even talking about Rothko to, uh, you know, get them acquainted with art in general, find out what their sort of like level of experience is. Have they been, say, to their state's uh, like art museum? What artists do they know? What do they like about art? What do they think art is? And once I get them acquainted with, uh, you know, more traditional, more approachable art, explain sort of the conflict that's at the heart of the development of art, and then uh, start discussing how contemporary art uh solves in part or is an attempt to solve that like primary conflict yeah that's a good answer have you ever heard of the bread and puppet theater they're an anarchist puppet show theater collective based in vermont and i remember i used to know someone who was interested in this group and one of their slogans was like art should be for everyone And I always wondered what specifically that means. Um, What's your, what what is your take on, on the slogan art should be 
for everyone? Well, it seems nice enough as a slogan, but I'm not sure that it could really work in practice or that it should work in practice. It's like saying theology is for everyone. Well, I mean, can everyone realistically get a nice background in theology and understand the sort of either working behind um, the church and various rites? I'm not sure that that's even possible if you want to have a functioning society. Um, and I'm not sure it's necessary. I think that a better statement or better slogan would be something like beauty should be for everyone. Um, but art is a practice. It's a way that people constitute their lives. And to be familiar with it is to, in part, either live that sort of life or be very close to people who live that sort of life. Um, so I would, yeah, I think I'd say that beauty should be for everyone, though art should be for those uh you know, who it needs to be for, for those who need to be artists and for those who need to be around artists to live well. Yeah. Be beauty should be for everyone is a great, a great repost or great answer to that question. I think, um, yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking about how Bravo, um, the TV channel used to be for Shakespeare plays and, you know, Wagner's the ring, things mm -hmm. like that. But it's, uh, I think that's where all the real housewife shows are, are based now, actually, is Bravo. Really? Oh, I, like, I haven't watched TV in, I don't know, years, so I'm totally out of touch. Yeah, I think that someone could write a, a sort of media epic about the descent of Bravo from uh, the the golden age of uh, Shakespeare plays to the, like, Kali Yuga of uh, housewife shows. Um, totally. But yeah, it's kind of... It, it, you know, what do you think, though, about John? John Dewey had this idea that art should be. Well, it wasn't this sort of dumbing down idea that we should create art that is only accessible at like with no background and without knowing anything. This like idea that art should be completely accessible to anyone, which would result in art that was totally bland or like the shows you see on Netflix now, I guess. Um, but John Dewey thought that we should be, it's almost an idea that you would take for granted now, but just this democratic idea that we should be putting fine art in all the post offices and public buildings and libraries and things like that. Yeah. Um, I think that at this point, putting what constitutes contemporary fine art in like a post office is a waste of contemporary fine art. Um, in the same way that, uh, you know, blaring John Cage over the loudspeakers at CVS would be just sort of confusing to most people. And I don't even think that's a good use of uh, more traditional, like, um, uh, say, I, I, high art music. Like, uh, oftentimes you'll go into a restaurant and hear, say, Brahms or Chopin, like, playing. And that also seems like a waste. I think that in terms of, you know, shoving fine art uh, at the public, um, just wherever, like, like wherever they happen to be, is already a mistake. Um, fine art should have its context in the same way that um, uh, like the liturgy does in churches. Like you wouldn't um, uh, walk into a 7-Eleven and expect there to see a Christian service. Um, you would want that to be in its proper place and it's most, effective, and it's most effectively delivered in its proper place. Um, I think that contemporary fine art should be introduced to the public um, in the same way that one might introduce um, any like anything that exists in a modern state of high cultivation to the public, like for instance, anyone in the public has access to say, uh, I don't know Kant, um, but it's not as if there are promoters of Kant on every street corner just saying, oh, by the way, have you heard of this? Have you heard of that? You know, read this critique of judgment. It's really, I like, it's really wonderful. Um, but rather, people who are interested uh, can go to their local public library, their local universities can access free like, lectures in their area and uh, they can get to know other people who have this interest and uh, they can access these things properly and I think that like, people should take more or less the same approach um, uh, when considering what to do with the public and fine like modern art Welcome yeah I, I think I can see part of that it would be sort of hard to play John Cage in a public setting mm -hmm. um but I think Chopin and Brahms, like, they slap, they have bangers, they have riffs, you know? And but, I think that's what the public likes is riffs and hooks and, and, and fugues. 
And so I think that those things could go over well. I think it would be kind of trippy and just a heady experience to walk into like a 7-Eleven and hear, maybe not John Cage, but have you ever heard Stockhausen? Oh, yeah, definitely. The like Song of the Children or... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I a song des Junglings, something like that. Yeah, um, yeah that would be that would be far out to hear that in in Seven Eleven. It would be, but I mean, even back to your point about like them, uh, the public liking, um, sort of like Chopin or uh, the public liking sort of more approachable romantic composers. I still think it's problematic to introduce those things in um, non like art specific contexts like just having them play in a chinese restaurant or something like that because it tends to sort of um it does not lend like the context of that introduction does not lend itself well to a proper reception and people tend yeah. to think of music then as like you know just like sonic wallpaper as opposed to the subject of the experience yeah the object but yeah that's cool I think, yeah, no, I think that's a good point that it, yeah, just the background nature of music would be reinforced by that. That kind of goes back to my spiel at the beginning of the podcast about how don't put this on the background. You have to keep it in the foreground, but mm -hmm. um, well, there are certain exceptions to that. Though. I'm just free associating here, but Eric Satie actually wanted his music to function as a uh, ambient background uh, music, but uh I guess that's an exception rather than... Oh, yeah. I mean, like, certainly, for instance, like, uh, soundtrack composers, um, like, their music is meant to function as, like, part of an accompaniment. And like, even with, like, Sati, like, yes, it's an accompaniment, but it's an accompaniment to a specific sort of an experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so for that sort of music, it has, you know, it has this dispensation to appear as wallpaper, but it's a special wallpaper. Yeah, yeah. Here, I'm just going to close my window quick because I forgot to shut it. And I don't know if street noise is leaking into the audio. Sure. Be right back. Yeah, good point. I feel though, like for a lot of people, um, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid. I mentioned this on the first podcast I recorded, actually, when I was talking to a reality gamer about Kanye West, is uh, when you're growing up in a small rural hamlet in the United States, you know, out in Kansas or Missouri or rural Pennsylvania, quasi-rural Pennsylvania, part Rust Belt, part rural, like I did, um, you know, one of the, the classic experiences is you go to take guitar lessons and uh, all the dudes who teach guitar uh, in these rural hamlets are way into prog rock. They're into like Yes and Kansas and Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is almost like a bridge to classical music because so many prog rockers, uh, you know, you'd ask them like, hey, who's your favorite musician or your favorite band? And they'd be like, oh, Bach, you know? Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that, um, but that was going back to like what I was saying earlier, you know, like you have your public and you have people who are um, uh, sort of like intimates, intimates of art. And when they see interest or when somebody mentions their interests, then they can uh, act as a bridge between um, them and, uh, you know, their special knowledge. Yeah, I think in some ways it's that sort of intermediate in between thing that seems lacking in culture this like straddling between those worlds um maybe it's not the only thing lacking and it probably still exists in some respects but okay well, that, like in modern culture uh well in contemporary culture um it's not that so much that there is like that lacking it's that the distance is far greater between say um like in ancient greece like the distance was between um uh, you know, contemporary culture in Homer uh, was sort of very, very small. It was like a small little, like, um, a, like a little hop. But the distance between sort of the man on the street and Rothko is uh, gigantic. So you need more intermediaries and the task is just harder and harder. Yeah. Um, I think that's just part of the cost of um, uh, the cost of modernity. It's, it's this great distance that introduces itself between the, like the new billions that um, now exist that, never did before and you know that elect few who have um uh, you know been cultivating and been uh, 
like refining uh, their relationship to like beauty and truth and that sort of thing yeah um before i switch topics wildly mm -hmm. i want to get your take on uh i know you were a fan of this i think you were a fan of this um that like lovecraftian building that they were planning on building in new york the sarco style building um do you remember the name i'll just look it up uh, quickly if you look up lovecraftian or no if you look up sarco style architecture i think like s-a-r-c-o style mm -hmm. let's see um oh yeah um i remember it now um yeah it like to my mind well it looks pretty cool and it looks like something that is not um it looks like it's not a museum piece like i don't look like i don't feel like i'm looking like um at some sort of epcot reek a reconstruction of what somebody's like notion of beauty is this feels uh um in harmony with the way that we live our life and also it has an aesthetic coherence that is compelling it yeah. like um a way of putting it is like if you walk into sort of any of the modern um uh pieces of architecture that tries herald as monstrosities say like um uh, like the lobby of like Deutsche Bank or Goldman Sachs, um, we, we, which are these sort of like airplane hangar sized like spaces filled with like glimmering steel and glass. To my mind, this is um, both uh, beautiful, of course, in an in an inhuman sort of way, but also in a way that like feels actually authentic to a way of life that is lived, as opposed to sort as opposed to, like walking into you know some sort of uh, trad Gothic reconstruction. Uh, so yes, um, I think that, that like that building looks good. Should build it. It definitely has a mood or a vibe, as the kids say. It's got a yeah, an eldritch horror feel to it for sure, but in, but in a fresh way. Um, mm -hmm. I guess the thing I don't really like, I can get behind some modern architecture for sure, um, or like like if a brutalist monstrosity is like really impressive. And they're really going all out. But I don't really understand the argument against ornamentation. Like, I was reading up on uh, Le Corbusier mm -hmm. and his uh, attack on ornamentation. And I don't really understand it. I feel like um, ornamentation is still still cool. Well, it depends what sort of, like, ornamentation. I think that there are a lot of, like, um, there are a lot of contemporary architects that will use ornamentation, but not ornamentation of uh, the sort that we're used to calling like ornamentation. Um, mm -hmm. I think that oftentimes the argument against like ornamentation is an argument against superfluities, and especially it's a, like, like also um, has to do with preserving uh, architectonic like purity. Like um, it's the same sort of thing you would find in early, like an early Dorian architecture, where which wasn't heavily ornamented either. You yeah. had the, like the purity of these geometric like features and sort of just heavy stone and to add uh, sort of like later Greek typical like ornaments to those, I think would be like to profane those, um, those geometric, like those geometric har harmonies that the architects like I'm uh, saw in their visions. And yeah, uh, I can see the argument against ornamentation, generally speaking. Do you like Hindu architecture? I do like, looking at hindu architecture i'm not sure that i could authentically live in um uh, yeah spaces that like were predominated by uh sort of like i can do aesthetics but they're very very cool but yeah definitely okay wildly shifting gears here um this is in the spirit of the times or at least of the current news cycle uh dostoevsky versus tolstoy Mm -hmm. who, who do you choose? Oh, I think that it's very hard, but I think I'd have to lean on uh, Dostoevsky, um, mostly because he comes off as he just comes off as far more human to me. Like when I read him, um, like I think the last thing that I've reread by him um, was The Double, and there's a short conversation he recounts between the protagonist and Goldyakin, um, well, like the devil, and 
where they first meet and they're hanging out at his sort of um, little crappy apartment and they sort of have um, like the standard um, uh, spur conversation where they just jump from like wild topic to wild topic to wild topic and eventually end with like some like salamander that he'd read about in a, like um, uh, in an encyclopedia somewhere. Yeah. And it strikes me as far truer than anything I've read in Tolstoy. Like it, you know, it, um, uh, like when I read it, it enriches my experience of life by telling me like, by putting into words, like something in life that I hadn't even thought to put into words. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Henry James kind of does this too, where he, well, not like Dostoevsky, kind of the opposite. Um, he, uh, let's see, what was that? Um, oh, he argued that Dickens' characters were all grotesque eccentrics and that there needed to be a core of normal, sensitive consciousness in literature. But mm-hmm. his characters, to me, seem almost too normal, like in a way that's not true to, to life. Whereas the, even though I like some Henry James stories a lot, but yeah, Dostoevsky definitely has people who have these like fiery, intense uh, personalities. They do seem to be uh, in a frenzy consistently all the time to a greater extent than maybe people typically are. But I guess that's just part of the nature of the, the beast. But um, do you like Tolstoy, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're both great novelists and um, I highly recommend both. I think they're both necessary reading. Yeah. Let's see. Okay, another question here. Um, Anglophile or Francophile? Um, I think if I had to choose, I'd go Francophile as opposed to Anglophile, but I'm not really that much of a Francophile either. It's just that there's something um, like exsanguinated in the, um, like the Anglo temperament, like something yeah. like lacking in life, all too reflective. It has... Um, it, I, I guess the taste of like life lived retrospectively um, yeah. as opposed to the French where there still is the same sort of intellectual element, but there's also an, a, like an abandonment to the passions that you don't find in England. Yeah, definitely. I guess you could choose another option too, if you wanted some other kind of ophile, like a Russophile or a, is it a Germanophile? I don't even know. I think so. Um, I... I don't know. I'm an American. Like I could say, like, oh, you know, I like the Germans a bit, or I like the French a bit. Um, um, yeah. But ultimately, like when I read, say, like Melville or Whitman or Rachel Lindsay, like there, I find sort of my heart reflected um, the most. That was a great answer. That was actually the correct answer. So glad to hear. We approve. Um, Let's see. Oh, well, this is something that I've wondered about with you for a long time. It's sort of a Twitter inside joke, but one that I'm not sure I was there for the origin story mm-hmm. of. And uh, why why don't you like Straussians? Oh, I mean, like, oh, I, I think that the beginning of sort of my contempt for Straussians was like a while back. And I think that since then, like my timeline display of contempt has died down somewhat as I found like other things to harp on. But like, a, I have a genuine dislike for Emma um, uh, for Straussians and Strauss essentially for, well, for Straussians, what I find them most like, guilty of is of like taking something from Plato and then like reading into it their own idiosyncratic uh, politics, which otherwise they wouldn't dream of uh, publishing under their own name. And so often they, you know, read in between, like read in between the lines of ancient sources, all that they would, um, uh, all that they would, and probably should just publish like authentically by themselves. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I suppose also Straussians are culpable of uh, just this intellectual classics-oriented waffling that does nothing. Like so, there's that. Um, but for Strauss. I think the thing that annoys me the most is that he reminds me of myself. And, you know, I, 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 I'm one of those personalities that if I like meet somebody who reminds me too much of myself, I instantly like hate them, but like self-consciously. Yeah. Um, 
let's see for our audience who may not know who leo strauss is he was like an important philosopher political philosopher at the university of chicago who um led us into iraq just kidding i feel like that was the wasn't that sort of sort of an association with straussians in the bush year sort of like a conspiracy oh, yeah. there were a lot of like students of um uh, like in the strauss and bloom like lineage that uh, ended up in the administration and a lot of them uh you know are alleged to be fans of war because it uh you know it flames genuine like um uh, like humane passions and goes back to the fundamental things um and also keeps like keeps peace in the state there are a thousand things people like like allege um uh, for why you know like quote unquote Straussians administration like supported the war i don't think that um uh, like the neocon impulse is universal among Straussians, and I think that it's just sort of, sort of used as a point of attack. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was the case. Like a lot of, I, I, there's a lot of like hate for Straussians on that one note. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And isn't there something too with Straussians where it's like okay to dissimulate and to like pretend that your real views are something other than what they really are? Well, it's part of Strauss's um general like, like reading of canonical like, philosophers that um he asked readers to keep in mind that these philosophers were not uh like publishing and acting in sort of like modern states where they had like, more or less uh complete freedom but were sort of like writing in these repressive states uh where in order to convey what you really meant you might have to put on uh, sort of a bigger pony show to distract people um from like your real meaning so that you can mean one thing to the king who might uh, have you killed or thrown out of court um, while meaning what you would like to mean to, uh, you know, to adepts or initiates. Um, And uh, that's a perfectly fair lens to view a lot of like canonical, like philosophical writing. There's something to that. And I think that to an extent, there's something like that in his own like writing. Um, But I don't think it's as, called is as either extreme as people make it out to be and i think that when straussians um uh, i don't think that there that there are many modern straussians that really have that much that's that, that that's that secret to say in their writing like to the extent that you can read between the lines in a modern straussians work i think that there's like nothing you wouldn't expect yeah but conceivably like a Straussian could pretend to be a nudist bodybuilding fascist, but would actually just be like some guy with like relatively normal neocon views. I see. We're talking about that. I'm just, um, I'm just joking around. Someone was uh, saying that to me earlier. I don't know if it's true, but. Oh, I mean, I, I mean, that definitely isn't like a definite Straussian like lineage. I wouldn't call him like an Orthodox Straussian of any camp. Um, but I don't think that, like, I don't think that Babstick is a, um, you know, is, like, ultimately, like, some Straussian dissimulation. I think it's, you know, it strikes me as what he authentically believes. Yeah, yeah, I think there it would be too, too hard to try to, like, interpret some of his expressed opinions in a way where they mean something other than what they appear to mean. That makes sense. Well, that, and often, like, so in like um in the bronze age mindset i think that like his sort of exhortations and like clinical sides are interspersed with like um confessional accounts which have the ring of truth to them and which are coherent with the views that he espouses um and those confessional like interludes aren't necessary and they're also like very out of character for like um uh for what you would expect somebody of his views to him uh, to express. Like there's one passage where he talks about having them uh, uh, gone into a museum after hours and um, just sort of sat in front of a statue of a, uh, a Kuros, like one of those sort of like um, young men with archaic smiles and plated hair. Yeah. And, um, he ex- like, like um, uh, he records a moment of like um, uh, unexpected ejaculation, like at the sight of this, and to my mind, if I was, you know, if I was espousing the views that he was espousing and trying to reach the audience that he's reaching, um, that's not a confessional aside that I just plop into my book. 
So like I think that he's being like authentic. I have no reason to believe that you know he's ultimately like a giant Straussian dissimulation. Yeah, yeah. I guess I don't believe it's a giant Straussian dissimulation either, unless that those little clues are like meant to throw you off. You know? Oh, I mean. It could be that he's just like a literary genius and that this is all, you know, <laughs> I mean, to me, that would be a giant waste of talent. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I think those weird elements of autobiography, though, to me, are sort of like the actual art of that particular book. But um, let's see. Oh, this was a, a tweet I wanted uh, you to expand on. And, and I feel like this tweet like vibed with you for sure. But I, I feel like it was a, a provocative tweet. Um, it was, to be honest, TBH, Macron has a very relatable vibe. Oh, I mean, like, I don't know quite where to start with expanding on it, but like, Considering that his um, uh, like his graduate theses were on Machiavelli and Hegel, uh, he was an assistant under like Ricoeur. I, I don't know. I, I'm probably like, butchering that pronunciation. Um, like he definitely has like a philosophical background um, that would make him conversant in like all the various little like Twitter and intellectual spats that um, uh, are in what you would call our sphere, I guess. Yeah. And it seems like he's fallen down somewhere on the, like the, not quite the Kojevian side, but somewhere on the notion where I'm a, like a triumphalist, like modern liberalism, um, where he is sort of this figure, I'm a, I mean, in a post-historical context, but in like a definite context, you know, like he understands history is behind him, but history is solid for him. He's standing on top of it. Um, and He's obviously, I think, like in his policy, in like the way that he sort of like makes statements that are a lot of sort of like well-informed, but ultimately like, um, ultimately like facile, like puffs of air and just the way that he carries himself like generally, like just seems like relatable. Um, like, I don't know, like he just like seems like a guy I could vibe with, like more so than like, I don't know, other heads of state that are in the news. He and Zamor too, it's like those dudes will drop names of philosophers and quotes and just phrase things in a way that you can never imagine American an American politician doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, okay. So I had an idea here. This is not original at all. I feel like a lot of other podcasts have done this. The music website Pitchfork used to do like an overrated, underrated thing where you just throw mm-hmm. out different topics and names and um, you say overrated or underrated. I'm not going to have you say overrated or underrated. Um, and Justin Murphy was doing this on his podcast, except he was like, it was like based or cringe. But I, I think instead of, I'm not going to, I need to come up with my own, uh, which I didn't do, but on the spot, I'm going to say, um, you got to say whether this is a sound of the summer and you can expand on that a little bit or, or it's last year's hits. Okay. Okay. And and some of these are things that I sort of like associate with you in like a vague, like cluster, like a mood board kind of cluster. Mm-hmm. And some of them are more like, Oh, what, do, what does Michael Schindler really think about this? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Brideshead revisited. Um, I would say, uh, that was last year. Last year's hit. How so? I think that both the veins of frustration and inspiration that it dealt with are ones that no longer, um, resonate. Um, the sort of Catholicism that has an ultimately, like, um, aesthetic bent that is found in Brideshead is the sort that, um, since Vatican II, and I, like, I think that Vatican II, like, you know, had sort of, like, uh, real reasons for existing. I'm not sure it was, like, well executed, but, like, I think that that is a sort of um, uh, faith that cannot stand the modern world. I don't think that um, Charles would have become Christian in 2022 um, uh, based on the events that he witnessed, like, in the book. And I also think that 
his anxieties about the you know the decline of um like the aristocracy and its decadence and like the uh like the homoerotic overtones which today would be like entirely banal um like ring i think that it's now a sort of interesting historical piece but i don't think that it has uh the same modern resonance that uh like it might have had 50 years ago yeah i i can respect that answer i feel though like there has been a whole twitter thing with latin mass and people converting to like trad catholicism and oh, even yeah. people- I mean, definitely but yeah. like the thing about sort of trad catholicism and latin mass is that it's you know being increasingly rejected by like the actual like catholic church um you know like you can only attend like a latin mass um uh, you know given like sort of like very special circumstances and uh yeah. it's very, like it's very clear that the current pope uh you know, is interested in a more publicly oriented like liturgy, and there are very good reasons for that. And I, res- I, I respect, you know, his intentions. Um, I don't think that, uh, like, the sort of like the Twitter niche and where like Latin Mass and like um, uh, liturgical uh, like traditionalism um, preponderates is going to continue to thrive like ever more and more i think that uh you know these are folks that are going to be like the russian old believers like increasingly sidelined yeah yeah i think they've basically banned the latin mass in chicago at this point um yeah i think kind of beyond maybe I'm just repeating hearsay. I probably shouldn't say it, but someone was saying that it, it's banned in Chicago now. So I didn't know if they meant beyond the, the Pope's own orders restricting when it could be performed, or if there was like some sort of more strict pause put on it in Chicago, but. It depends uh, upon the Bishop and like what local priests are able to do with like their petitions. Like I know that in DC right now, um, I think there's one church I know of that still like has a lot of mass. It's not advertised in the bulletin, but like, it exists and and I, I and Catholics can go to it at Old Saint Mary's, I think. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And you can go to some Anglo Catholic uh, masses that they give you a little Latin, just a, a little. I know trads would be loath to go, but they give you it's a little. Oh yeah, yeah, like I know a few folks in the like. It's so weird to call them like Anglicans, like when their church is in like communion with the Church of England. It feels like just an extensive LARP. But um, like there are like there are a bunch of those in like the greater DC area that I'm aware of, and they have a bit of Latin in the mass. Yeah, I went to one like that recently. It was it was cool. Um, Okay, this is the next one. Uh, Peacoats. Hmm. Um. Hmm. Hmm. This is a hard one. Um, okay, good. I'm glad I asked one that that's not so, rattling you. <laughs> Just kidding. Like, I suspect that they're like, like, like old news, like last year, etc. But I do have like a few peacoats in my closet, and I will continue to wear them. I just think that they have like a bit of a bulkier construction than is necessarily like um, fit for this year's more minimalist trends. Yeah. Yeah, because I bought one a couple months back, and my brother was like, they're not in style anymore. Oh, yeah. I think that, like, when I, like, wear, like, a sort of, like, a very definite peacoat, um, it's, you know, a bit, like, reminiscent of, like, you know, 2015, 2018, as opposed to, like, what's passing on shelves, like, right now. Yeah. Okay. How about... This is... uh my own one of my own favorites but um you can feel free to answer however you want uh jd salinger hmm Hmm. i think that as far as it seems considering that salinger is on the curriculum and that like let's let's read him in high school um or earlier I don't think that he's been fully played out in terms of his oof. Well, I think that like his like the full reception of Salinger's work is yet to come. I don't I don't necessarily have good reasons. Yeah. That, but I think that like I think that Salinger 
I think he's almost fully understood, but he's not fully, fully understood. Like, in the same way that, say, like, even, like, Waugh is. Like, um, I think that there are still things in Salinger that haven't been entirely worked out. Yeah, I wrote my own contribution to this for a thwart a while back. But, uh, yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, you know, writers like Salinger who are insanely popular, they become hostage to the high school cliches Mm -hmm. and yeah, the, the reception has to come once those cliches have been worn out and, you know, you can see beyond them finally. Mm Um, okay. Uh, chamomile. Hmm. Hmm. I would say that it's, you know, this summer thing because of its delicateness. I think that, like, delicate flavors are coming in. That's my take. That's a, that's a good answer. Yeah, I, I think chamomile is uh, perennial for sure. Um, let's see. Uh, Pete Davidson. Oh. You know, I think that he's a this summer like um pete evanson's arc hasn't been played out yet i think that you know there might be like real tragedy or like real high tragic comedy in the future for him um especially given like him and kanye i don't know exactly like where that's gonna go it's only been escalating yeah yeah Um, especially because like that's not over yet Yeah. yeah like a thing that like uh suggests itself to me is part of like pete davidson's like um uh like there being sort of like vitality like left in his arc is that he has this like um uh like strange unaccountable sexual appeal and like where that exists like you know that life exists too like yeah so, uh, I, 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 I got a brand him as of this summer yeah he has the kavorka as yeah. they wait, yeah. wait, it's funny i mean i guess i brought this up just now but i talked about this on the last podcast too the like yeah, the like weird appeal of this seemingly goofy goober Pete Davidson, you know, and mm-hmm. my my previous guest, he was saying that it's like incel behavior to um, get mad at Pete Davidson on on Twitter. And so we were discussing that. But um, OK, so. Taliban Twitter. Mm-hmm. Oh, Taliban Twitter. Um... Oh, like are you talking about Twitter, like as used by the Taliban, or like like Twitter about like I'm um, about the Taliban? Uh, Twitter as used by the Taliban. Oh, um, I'm not really like privy to it. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, maybe I am thinking more about the Twitter about them, like with Talichads and all that. I mean, um. Like, you know, with them riding on bumper cars, cars and duck boats and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that, that. Like, But they post that stuff first, right? And then it works yeah. its way into the memosphere, if that's a term. Yeah. I think, like, I'm going to say that it was last year. And because, like, my feeling is, is that now that they're in power, like, they just sort of can't be as goofy. There was this great interview, I forget where it was, um of a former fighter and now like police chief um in afghanistan and like he said something to the effect of like during the revolution i couldn't wait to get up in the morning but uh like now i can like barely sleep and like you know like i'm just a wreck and like there are people coming to me like to dissolve like like to resolve domestic disputes and he was just sort of complaining about like the bureaucratic life and yeah (laughs) like the minute that you have like um uh, these sort of like like these holy warriors um uh like in very sort of um uh, conventional positions with conventional demands um i think that like sort of the fire and flavor of their twitter posting is going to change yeah it's it's crazy how similar the experience of that taliban is to so many boomer hippies yeah yeah um okay nathan j robinson's sartorial style i think that assuming that it's 
not changing it, but it still is like like what I remember it as being sort of um uh, like the goofy Angloish velvet pieces with the wide ties. Um, I think that was it's gonna be like last year. Like it's it's uh like a less successful version of what Wes Anderson does, and even Wes Anderson's style isn't um uh, like isn't like you know thriving into new places or becoming like um uh, more prominent in the public sphere i think that i think that what he's going for in terms of sartorial presentation is an aesthetic that's ultimately dead and has been dead and any appeal in the modern world for it is some uh for you know for just a different time and i'm pretty sure that that time's currency has been uh, is being played out yeah yeah i guess he was trying it was such a bold almost you know quixotic quest to appropriate the dandy for the left mm-hmm. and I, was he the only person to ever do that to try to be a left i mean not ever in the history of of the world but in recent times to be oh, like a, I mean, a communist dandy so broadly speaking on the left like not just sort of like um uh like the hard socialist communist but like broadly speaking say like the new yorker like they love that sort of thing and like um, oh yeah like yeah sort of like dandified leftist politics um so i don't think it's that weird um it's just on its way out yeah it's just my feeling for it definitely yeah the future of leftist style does not lie in that direction Mm -hmm. um it seems like the, a lot of leftists have gone back to the high school thing of like painting your fingernails black. Really? Well, I don't know. I feel like I've been seeing this. Like, yeah, like a, kind of like an emo thing with like dudes painting their fingernails black. Oh, news to me. I mean, like, I mean, I guess I don't know that many leftist people or even like that many like yeah. conventional leftist people. Like, like the leftist folks that I hang out with are people like, you know, who read just as much Hegel as I do. Yeah, yeah. it's it's very like you know it's like a very special subset of like people you know who i I, who have a very special nodding acquaintance with one another and i'm not sure that's uh representative of the folks in terms of style of like the folks who do not have that nodding acquaintance and in fact would not want to have that nodding acquaintance yeah Um, yeah i mean i don't know i i I couldn't really speak to it because that's just like rarefied sphere of the the dc social lion i think that I, I'm probably thinking of Twitch streamer type. I don't watch Twitch streams, but I think that um, was it Hassan Piker. I think he has like black fingernails. Oh, all right, yeah. all right. <laughs> but um, okay, what else do I have here? Okay, we're almost uh, we're almost done. But uh, Whit Stillman. Whit Stillman. Oh, I. I hope he is not last year and that there's still summer left in him. Like, I think that, yeah. Um, what was the name of that historical, um, uh, drama that I like that period piece that like he made recently. Oh man. I'm not up on his recent work. I just know metropolitan Barcelona and the last days of disco. Oh yeah. So like those things, I think that like what he tried to do with sort of like cataloging the experience of like the wasp and modernity and like, I'm a, you know, and their sort of like, like their troubles and travails. Like, I think that's, you know, been done well and he knows how to do it and he's done as much of it as anybody could want. Um, but I think that in terms of uh, what he could do, that there's more in him. I, I think that if he wanted to make um, another sort of film that would be this summer that he could, like I have confidence in him, like on that, on, on that count. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a, a good answer. I, I like um I like wit. Not on a first basis with him, but I'm presuming. Mm-hmm. Um okay. Um what do you th- okay. Jam bands like the Grateful Dead, Fish, etc. Oh, um I'm inclined to say last year, but also I'm not like very familiar with all that. Like yeah. My musical tastes are essentially just sort of like, 
like classical contemporary classical and folk like it's it's like very like disassociated from like a culture at large so you know like uh, i couldn't speak to any of that okay just a, a couple more here um sure. okay Blo- bloodless coups Hmm. Bloodless coups. I think that all the places that you could have a bloodless coup, you wouldn't want a bloodless coup. Like, um, and by you, I mean, like, uh, sort of like modern Western liberal democracies. Like, sort of yeah. like, yeah, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that there will be any blood, I bloodless coups in the near future because none are necessary. The sort of place where, like, you could have a, like a coup without bloodshed is a place that you can just use soft policy or other like like um, uh, other bloodless means to like get uh your, your policy goals um achieved um, yeah you so, gotta play it robert k moses style mm-hmm. yeah so i'd say um neither here nor there in terms of last summer or the, like like I, I, neither here nor there in terms of like last year or next summer yeah, well, I think you're really saying last summer, though, because it's like if you could get, you know, if you can get get the bloodless power by other means than like an overt coup, you're. Yeah. Yeah. So in its most literal meaning anyway. Um, OK, I guess this one's kind of obvious for you, but Roger Scruton, is that how you pronounce his last name? I should know how to pronounce it. but uh, It's just Scruton. Scruton. Yeah. So it's not Scruton like. Crouton. Okay. <laughs> My knowledge, no, no. <laughs> Roger Scruton. Um, oh, I think that, like, he is definitely last year. In fact, I'm, like, quite sad to see, like, how last year he is. Um, like, I remember, like, reading his books um, uh, with interest in college. Obviously, for those who follow me on Twitter and, like, who know my, like my writing, I'm a critic of Scruton, especially his aesthetics. Um, yeah. But, like it's just sad seeing how much like like the um, uh, like a how much he like deeply cared about these things how big his output was um and how much he was heralded like during his life and then seeing him reduced to like um uh, like at best a meme at, like um at worst um like a shadow in contemporary discourse i don't think that like all those big serious arguments that he presented trying to preserve something of Hegel or Burke here and there, um, just, you know, have been more or less like forgotten. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's sad to see. But you, you, you sort of relentlessly meme Scruton memes. Oh yeah. But like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like a a sad tragedy that I'm actively participating in. Um, (laughs) um, like, I think that by memeing him, I keep him alive more than he would otherwise be, like, especially in our sort of sphere of Twitter. I think that were it not for, like, putting the Scruton Yes meme next to, like, a fluffy cow or, like, you know, like a happy rat, that nobody would even mention him. Um, he was, a, like, when I wrote that giant big art essay, not the shorter one that I was in, that, like, that was in I'm 1776, but the one that was in Church Life. Yeah. Uh, while I was drafting it, Scruton was alive, and as you probably know like a lot of the essay deals like with Scruton like um uh, specifically I quote him at length and I was hoping to finish it um uh, uh at a time when he was like not yet dead and yeah yeah he died I think as I was like putting my touches on the final draft and I had to like go in and change like Roger Scruton's like a late Roger Scruton and I even added a sort of um a posthumous note um that I think is on his Wikipedia page now because it's very very um uh uh like laudatory um but yeah uh-huh. i was like i was actually hoping that he would respond um because he was somebody whose aesthetics i had read intensely in college and that i had come up against like later in life and would have been fantastic to even just get like an email response or back and forth because when i while i was writing it he was still doing like the dc talk show stuff i, yeah. I mean not a talk show i mean like like the dc like, like lecture circuit stuff yeah like, like he would come by to heritage or i could go to like aei every now and then give a lecture and i assumed that he would have read you know church life it's a relatively like prominent journal um but yeah it's sad that you know i wasn't able to get that conversation and, and also that he died 
Yeah, that's yeah, that is too bad. I um, I kind of had a similar thing with like I always wanted like to meet Harold Bloom, mm -hmm. and um, I I got some emails from him once or twice. They weren't like that detailed. They were just like, "Yo, thanks, bro." You know, <laughs> they weren't they weren't oh, that's like, nice. huh. they were they weren't like uh, yeah. But it was it, it's kind of crazy because you could um email Harold Bloom and he would respond. Yeah, Just yeah. Randos could email yeah. Harold Bloom and he'd respond. Yeah, he was an interesting character. I think that the anthology of romantic poetry that he edited with Trilling, like I'm sure it was written by grad students, but like it was one of my first introductions to romantic poetry. And like, you know, from I think when I was like 16 onward, like um, uh, his name was seared into my mind as being associated with what's variously called like, um, uh, like the canon um, yeah. or the great books. And, you know, it's also like you know like uh like a shame that i was not like by the time that i was prompt enough to be like you know writing articles and whatnot that you know he had already like retired and was on the brink of death yeah wolf giants mm -hmm. um let's see i think that's almost it oh there was one thing left here we're almost at an hour anyway um <laughs> capri sun juice boxes uh so out of pure nostalgia i i hope that they're at this summer thing but like yes. in all likelihood they are like a like last year thing um i like when i was a kid i loved all that stuff like capri sun high c like there's one i i doubt that you even like have heard about it but i keep, I, I, like, I keep on asking like all the folks i meet like if they had had this in their childhood like mondo do you know it i do know mondo yeah yeah okay yeah, it was, was like Kool-Aid, but it was in like a plastic um, bottle that you... It was I like mean, in a soft plastic that was like decomposing and like leaching plastics into your drink in front of you, like, like your very yeah. eyes. Yeah, it was like, like a different kind of plastic, specifically one that was designed to, yeah, disintegrate into the, into the uh, Mondo, don't sue us if you still exist. They probably don't. But. It's like, I imagine like like a six pack of Mondo just sitting like, like in a hot trunk. like. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I have like a deep nostalgia for like Green Mondo, and like one day I hope that it will come back. Yeah, I was in a teacher's car recently. My my one friend is a teacher, and they had um, uh, Capri Suns uh, for their oh, nice. students, like a, a big you know pack in their car. So they're still around. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I'll see. Um... Like the Capri Sun packets, like I like thrown out around like parks or like I can DC, like I think kids still drink them, which is amazing. But yeah, yeah, they'll they'll outlast many things that seemed to have stable foundations. I think. Mm. Um, all right, um, we're at an hour. Uh, Michael, it's been great having you on. This was a. a uh, wide-ranging discussion to say the least and that's what i wanted it to be i wanted it to be kind of like the dostoevsky conversation you were describing where the two mm -hmm. characters are just like 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 rapidly shifting topics you know mm -hmm. and i yeah. think that, that that people are going to be beholding your your many sides and and just many like you know like a mirror maze with many reflections of michael schindler oh yeah well thank you for having me on it was a pleasure Great. Yeah. Uh, it was great having you on. If you wanted and you don't by any means need to do this, we can can cut this out. Uh, you could read us out with one of your poems if you wanted to. I'll read um, a purple. Is that good? Yes. All right. Um, so just for context, this is a poem published, I believe, in December 2020 in the New English Review as part of a, a group of three poems. I happen to like it um, compared to my other poems. It's very short, so I hope it's approachable. And here it goes. A purple abandoned the dust of an impressionist painting, a music fit for fame and fainting, wrought iron meant to rust. What, in the tones ascending, the colors caught in blending? What, the metal mired in time? Poems all with a pall of rhyme. The hues fade, the roar dies. Genius glimmers to the grave. Beauty itself closes its eyes and sleeps a winter in its cave. That's it. Nice. Beautiful, Michael. Um, yeah, it was great having you.
Yeah, sounds good. Um, uh, hopefully, hopefully this like, like uh, another time in the future if this is going to be a like um, a continuing series. Sure. Yeah, I I'm, I plan on doing it. I mean, I'm just doing it for fun anyway. I mean, I want to get as many uh, listeners as possible, but yeah, I won't stop doing it. You know, I won't be deterred by ill fortune. You know. I just want to have conversations with people who, yeah, from interacting with people on, you know, Twitter, I've like wanted to have conversations with you and, you know, a bunch of other people um, for a long time. So yeah, this is like a good excuse to do that. (laughs) So. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, good talking to you. Hopefully I'm, uh, you know, see you around. You too. Yeah. I'll see you. I'll see you back in the, the sim. All right. You too. Night.